happen. Over the last year, I've thought a lot about communion. If you're brand new to church, if you haven't understood what this means before, basically what we have here is the bread represents Jesus' body, the cup of juice represents Jesus' blood. And those of you who have only been joining us over the last couple of years, pre-COVID, we had a couple different ways in which we practiced communion. In the traditional service, we would have the preacher come up and he would speak, and usually at the end of his message, he would transition to communion. There would be a table here with bread and cup, and the pastor and a co-pastor would be out there with him, and then board members and spiritual leaders in our church would line up and they'd pass it out to the auditorium. In Renew, which was our contemporary service when we were in the gym, we did it a little bit differently. Again, at the end of the message, the pastor would come up and he would talk about communion, but we would have two or three tables and we would invite people to come forward. But COVID hit and it changed everything. The church was shut down. We were doing um, church online. So we were doing church from the comfort of our own homes and we had to reimagine what communion looked like. And so what would happen is we would preach and then at the end of the message, we would talk about communion and then we would take it uh, together. And some people started to reach out to me and they said, Dave, it felt like communion's kind of tacked on, just kind of an additional element to the service. And it doesn't have that weight or that gravitas that it used to have. Now, to be clear, it wasn't just tacked on, but I could see how it certainly felt that way. And two things happened, um, and relatively quickly, I don't remember which one happened first, but one of my friends in the church sent me an email and she said, Dave, we we feel like we've, we've lost that gravitas. We've lost that weightiness of what's really taking place. Jesus died for us. We need to reflect on that. About the same time, I was doing a school project where I was interviewing people from different um, streams of Christianity, and I interviewed an academic Catholic scholar. And so we were talking about discipleship going back and forth, and at the end of that time, he looked at me uh, via Zoom, and he said, oh, communion, the Lord's Supper, the Holy Eucharist, it's the source and summit of the Christian life. And he said it with this awe and with this reverence. And so if you've been with us over the last year, you've probably noticed we've tried to do communion in different ways. Uh, we still occasionally talk about it at the end of a service, like we will today. But oftentimes, Joel or one of our other pastoral staff will stand up and he'll talk about it for a couple minutes and then we'll sing a song and then we'll take some bread and some juice together. And we've done other things as well. And we're trying to figure out how do we add that weightiness to what's taken place? Uh, unfortunately, our clicker is broken. We've got one on order, should be here in a couple weeks. So you're gonna hear me say slide approximately 37 times today. Josiah, slide please. The Apostle Paul writes in, uh, to the church in Corinth, whenever you eat this bread, whenever you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And those of you who weren't here when I opened the service today, this whole service will be about Passover. This whole service will be about communion. And I hope we regain that weightiness of what's taken place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, one of the Proverbs that I've been thinking a lot about over the last year is the one that says, the horse is made ready for battle, but victory rests with the Lord. And I bring that up because I would love for there to be awe and reverence today. But I can't do that, only you can. And so God, we pray as a congregation that we would sense the incredible redemption that's taken place how you've rescued the Egyptians out of slavery and 3,500, I think I said Egyptians, the Israelites out of slavery and how 3,500 years later, you're doing the same with us. So God, by your power, may my words fall down, may your words be lifted up that we might see how great you are and be totally in awe and reverence. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.
Next slide, please. If you have your Bibles with you, we're in Exodus chapter 11, Exodus chapter 11. If you're brand new to church and you're sitting in the auditorium, there should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Exodus is easy to find. It's the second book of the Bible. Big numbers are the chapter numbers, small numbers are the verse numbers. For those of you um, watching from home, we're so glad you're joining us. You can download the app or maybe you have a Bible with you. So allow me to talk to you about the story so far because it's incredible. Exodus opens up and the nation of Israel has blossomed. They have multiplied like rabbits. Initially, 70 people showed up. We're now about 2 million people. And Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is not happy about this. He's concerned that these Israelites might eventually rebel against him and cause this uprising and he's gonna lose all of his power. And so he thinks to himself, the best way to stop a rebellion, don't even let it start. And so he makes the Israelite men um, slaves and forces them to incredibly difficult labor. And then he says one of the most evil things we hear in all of scripture. For all of the Israelites born to the women, kill them. And so you can imagine the Israelites are thinking, this is horrible, what do we do? And so they cry out to God, next slide please. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And so God raises up a man by the name of Moses and he interacts with Moses in a powerful way. He says, Moses, grab your brother Aaron. I want you to go and stand before Pharaoh and say to them, say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh sees Moses who's 80 years old, his brother Aaron who's 83 and and Pharaoh thinks to himself, "Mm, no. And so now we have a problem and now they go back to the Israelites and and, uh, Moses is crying out to God, God, what are we going to do? What can I do? There's, There's nothing that I have power to do. And God says, exactly, that's my job. And last week we looked at the nine plagues that God put upon the people of Egypt. And today, one of the most important passages in all of scripture, the Passover and the Israelites escaping from Egyptian slavery. If you enjoy following along word for word, um, this is the ESV. Uh, Oh, one other note for the note takers in the room. There's no three points today. There's just some chapter headings for you to follow along. This is all of chapter 11. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor, and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these, your servants shall come to me and bow down to me and say, get out, you and all your people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And so Moses went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders might be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He did not let the people of Israel go out from his land. 
Last week, David spoke about the nine plagues that um, led up to this moment. And each time, Pharaoh said, I am not going to let the people go. And David reminded us that the biggest idea here is the power of God and to understand just how great he is. Because it's not just Pharaoh who needed to see how great God is. The Egyptians needed to see how great God is. The Israelites needed to see how great God is. And even to some extent, Moses and Aaron themselves needed to see how great God is. But the book of Exodus has multiple layers to it. And this is just fascinating, yes, to see how the greatness of God. But in the opening chapters of the Bible, in Genesis 1 and 2, we see God creating. Here, we see God undoing all of creation. Next slide, please. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was hovering over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Genesis 1 verse 2, nothing has happened yet except God and some water. The very first plague, God takes the water and he turns it into blood. Uh, next slide, please. God said, the, let there be light, and there was light. The very first thing God does is he brings light into the world. What's the ninth plague that we looked at last week? Darkness. And so God is showing people over and over again, I can create, I can undo it, my will is going to be done. You see God creating the, the heavens, the earth, the sky and the sea and all that is in them. And then at the same time, we see him, um, horror comes from all of them, frogs from the sea, gnats from the earth, flies from the sky. God created fresh vegetation and then sent the plague of locusts to destroy it and creation is being undone on the sixth day that God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, it was his greatest triumph. God created humanity and breathed life into man and woman. And now we reach the 10th and final plague. And God says, I will destroy the firstborn of all those in Egypt. There's another layer of intrigue that's happening here. Not only does God want us to see how great he is, not only does he want us to see that he is in control of all of creation, he wants to show the Egyptians, I am greater than all your Egyptian gods. The two greatest gods in the Egyptian pantheon are Ra, the god of the sun, and Osiris, the god of death. And what are the last two plagues? Darkness would come, Ra, I'm much greater than you. And the plague of death, Osiris, you don't control death, I do. To add another layer of intrigue for those of you who might know a little bit about Egyptian gods, the god Anubis is the god with the dog head. And you'll notice in 11 verse seven, not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel. And God is showing over and over again just how great he is, the Passover. Chapter 12, verses one and two. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. When we read these two verses, um, it's easy to understand. The Passover is the beginning of a new month. It's the beginning of a brand new year for the nation of Israel. The events of the plagues and the exodus are so significant to Israel's identity that he's saying, you are emerging as a nation. This is going to be a brand new beginning. Pardon me. <coughs> There's a lot that we're gonna hit today. It's the only passage, I think, of all of Exodus where we're gonna read every single verse, but this is just so cool, I couldn't possibly leave it on the cutting floor. About 1500 BC, the Babylonians 
created the zodiac sign. Next slide, please. And so you have this zodiac sign in which most of us are familiar with, and it's simply a way of keeping track of the calendar. The, uh, they would have 360 days in their year, and they would follow along month to month by watching the stars progress. Well, in the ancient Near East, you don't have social media, but nations are learning from one another, and the Egyptians look at the Babylonians, and they think to themselves, oh, that makes sense. Every 30 days, we get a brand new lunar cycle, so we'll follow along with that as well. This part is fascinating. Next slide, please. So when we arrive at the sign of Libra, which is at the end of September till the end of October, we have the scales. This is at harvest time. So your good deeds are shown by how much harvest you have. Your good deeds are shown by what happens to you. For those of you who watch the TV show Moon Knight, the main um, bad guy showed his, uh, the signs and he would touch you and he would see if your good deeds outweighed your bad deeds. Conversations we have with people all the time. And God says, this will no longer be the first month of the year. The new first month of the year will be in Aries. Next slide, please. And Aries is from the end of March to the end of April. And notice what the sign is. It's not a set of scales. It's a ram, a sacrificial ram. And so even in the zodiac sign, God is saying, you are not going to be judged based on your deeds. You're going to be judged based on the sacrifice and whether or not you believe in him. It's absolutely amazing. Verses three and six, this is the spotless lamb. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. If the household is too small for an entire lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight." Once again, um, a handful of verses, not hard to understand, but loaded with meaning. A family would choose a lamb from their flock, and if that lamb was too big for their family to eat, they would invite their neighbors over and they would eat it together. Next slide, please, five and six. You'll notice the lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, and you shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. So the instructions are simple. On the 10th day of this month, go out to your livestock and grab a lamb and make sure that that lamb is at least one years old. Make sure that that lamb is spotless. There is no injury. It is as white as snow. Make sure that there is no sickness within that lamb. And then bring it into your house. And this is where you think, well, that's a little bit weird. Why would I hold on to it for four days? But it wasn't just grab a lamb from the field and slaughter it. It was grab a lamb from the field and watch it. Is it sick? Is it unhealthy? Does it limp? Is there something wrong with it? People didn't want to just grab that lamb and kill it. God wanted people to hold on to that lamb and get to know it a little bit. And if you have little kids like I do, can you imagine how hard it would be to sacrifice that lamb? This is amazing. 1,500 years later, another sacrificial lamb would show up. Not just for, the family, for a family or two, but for the entire nation of Israel. And Jesus walked into the temple on the 10th day of the first month. Entering a male one year old was considered an adult lamb. Jesus at 30 years old is in the prime of his life. Jesus was an adult male without blemish and gave himself four days to inspection to see if he was worthy. 
Luke chapter 19, verses 48 and 49, say all the teachers, all the chief priests, all the religious leaders were watching him to see if he was holy and perfect. They were trying to find something wrong with him. This is amazing. Luke 20, verse one, next slide, please. Chief priests, teachers of the law, and the elders gathered together and they tried to trick him. John's baptism, they said, is it from man or from heaven? Jesus answers masterfully. Next slide, please. Luke 20, verse 20, spies were sent to trick him. Jesus, this coin, it has Caesar's head on it. Do we give it to Caesar? Do we give it to you? What do we do? Jesus, once again, answers masterfully. Next slide, please. 20, verse 27, Jesus is questioned by the Sadducees. At the resurrection, Jesus, this wife that we're married to now, who does she belong to? Jesus answers masterfully, and this is beautiful. Luke 20, verse 40. No one dared ask him anything else. Four days in the temple. Blameless. One final comment, then we'll move on. Um, next slide, please. You'll notice at the end of verse six that we have twilight. And I don't know about you, but when I think twilight, I think at, um, at sunset, some of you might think about vampires. That's your own thing, not mine. But it's interesting because it doesn't actually mean at sunset. It means the Hebrew word here is ereb, and it means between the two evenings. First century Jewish historian, a man by the name of Josephus, says that the nation of Israel would recognize that when um, the twilight meant between noon and 6 p.m. at exactly three o'clock. And so at three o'clock on the 14th day of the month, the chief priest was sacrificing a sheep for the nation of Israel. At the exact same time, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is dying on a hill and breathing his last breath. Verses seven to 13. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel on the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread, bitter herbs as they, sh they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning, you shall burn." In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. If I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, man and beast, and on the gods of Egypt, that's the whole thing about the nine plagues, the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will what? I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Again, not terribly difficult to understand and loaded with meaning. One of my favorite events as a pastor, I was working in High River, which is just south of Calgary, and the lead pastor at the time decided we should have a community pig roast. And so him and a couple other guys got to the church at 5 a.m., took this 200-pound pig, and they started roasting it for 13 hours. It was amazing. What does that teach us? It teaches us if you love Jesus, you don't boil meat, you barbecue it because that's God's ordained plan. We should follow that. In the ancient Near East, the surrounding nations would boil their meat or they would eat it raw. And God is saying, I don't want you to be like the surrounding nations. I want you to be different. Yes, there's certainly health implications that are at work here, and that's a real thing. But there's something else going on around as well. Uh, verse nine, please, Josiah. 
Um, looking at verse nine, do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it. Listen to this next part. It's head with its legs and its inner part. In other words, when you roast that lamb together, we want it to look like a lamb or a goat. This isn't just a feast with a plate of meat. It's supposed to look like the animal. Listen to this next slide, please. Entering the sacrificial system would be a vivid reminder that a life had to be sacrificed to save the people. A vivid reminder that a life had to be sacrificed to save the people. Looking, when I gather together with family over Thanksgiving or Christmas or Easter, and you see that plate of turkey, it's delicious. And my mouth waters. When my wife says, hey, can you pick up a roast chicken on the way home from the grocery store? You come in and you pick up a chicken that looks like a chicken. Now think about this. The Israelites could have followed these instructions perfectly. They could have found a spotless lamb. They could have done the preparation every, um, the way they were supposed to. They could have had their clothing all tucked in so they were ready to go when that time was coming. But if they didn't take the blood from the lamb and put it on the door frames of their homes, they would also lose the firstborn child. Do you see Jesus in this picture? Do you see Jesus, the lamb of God, displayed on the cross? It was common practice for those who were crucified to have their legs broken so that it would speed up death. We see next slide in John 19, 36, that Jesus' bones were not broken. Not only is this true, not only is this a beautiful picture of the Lamb of God who saved us, a real person saved us, but we see something beautiful at work here. We don't have to be perfect because Jesus is. And the blood that was shed doesn't have to go on the door frames of our homes like it does for all of the Jews, but the door frame to the entrance of heaven has blood on a cross and it's available for all people of all times, for all of history. This is the story of redemption. Verses 14 to 20. This day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations as a statute forever, you shall keep this as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the 14th day of the month at evening you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native in the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Next slide, please. To summarize, the Passover is about being saved. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is about being sanctified. If you're brand new to church, if you don't know these big theological terms, sanctification really simply is to turn our back on sin and to turn our face towards God. To turn our back on sin and to turn our face towards God. 
But what's so incredible about this passage is that God and through Moses are speaking to the nation of Israel and they're still in captivity. And God is speaking with this incredible authority. This is going to be done. This is going to happen. And this is what you're going to do to show the people around you that you believe in me. 14th is the day of Passover. And the very next morning, the nation of Israel is going to escape from slavery and run towards freedom. Take another look at verses 15 and 19 and you'll see how serious God is. In verses 15 and 19, we see this repetition, you shall be cut off from Israel if you eat the leaven. Not just kicked out and deserted. This is a euphemism. You will die. And God takes this incredibly seriously and we see this throughout the rest of scripture. Next slide, please. Jesus, um, speaking to his disciples, says, um, be on your guard against the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Be on your guard against their teaching. Next slide, please. Um, The apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old leaven that you may be a new batch without leaven as you really are for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. It's a lot nicer picture when I have a piece of French bread. But that's not the Passover. This isn't product placement. I'm not getting paid for this. This is a prop that cost me $2.59. It's a cracker. It's unleavened. And it's God's way of saying, do you believe that this is true? Do you believe that my body is broken for you? Do you believe that my blood is shed for you? And if you do, for one week, you're going to eat no leaven. You're going to remove the sin from your life as best as you know how. There's lots of sin in our lives. We speak poorly against people. We drive too fast. We cheat at work. We steal things. We um, are not honest on our taxes. There's lots of different things we do. And it's this reminder during Passover that Jesus saved us. And so we need to live our lives that bring glory to him. This isn't in my notes, so I just wanna make sure I get it right. Um, Dallas Willard says, grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. Grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. We can still work hard for our glory um, to bring Jesus glory. Verses 21 to 28, a solemn remembrance. And Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel on the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. The Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on your two doorposts, the Lord will what? Pass over and will not allow the destroyer to enter the houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, mom, dad, why do we have Passover? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people in Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared us. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. The people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. So the weight's starting to settle in. It's not just communion 
It's not just the Lord's Supper. It's not just Eucharist for those of you who are visiting and don't know who Jesus is. It's not just cracker and juice. It is a reminder. We are a Baptist church is a Protestant church. We have two sacraments, Holy Communion and Baptism. And we practice this once a month, reminding ourselves that we continue to do this until Jesus comes back. I'd enjoy, I would invite you to stand up with me. We're gonna do something that's a little bit more traditional than normal. Next slide, please. And we're going to read these two verses. And I know sometimes we get our cadence off a little bit, so I'll count you in on three. One, two, three. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. You may be seated. The people bowed their heads and worshiped. When we come to the Lord's table, we see the bread and we're reminded of the body of Jesus broken that we, made, that we might be made whole. We're reminded of his blood that was shed so our blood doesn't have to be. Jesus receives the death we deserve so that we might receive the glory he deserves. But there's one significant difference between the Passover and communion. At the Passover for Jews, the main element was a lamb. But there is no lamb. There's a bread and there's a cup. Because the Lamb of God, who died on the cross for our sins, is now seated at the right hand of the Heavenly Father. When we come to the table, remember the sacrifice. Verses 29 to 32. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night, and he said, Up, get out from here, both you and the people of Israel. Go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. And bless me. Exodus is a book full of miracles, of God rescuing his people from slavery and bringing them into a promised land. This is a story of redemption. And at some point, we need to say, do we believe this is true? Because it's filled with miracles. There's God speaking to a man through a burning bush. There's a man who throws a rod to the ground and it becomes a snake. There is this time where God says, I'm going to turn water into blood. I'm going to send frogs and locusts and gnats and your animals are going to have boils and you are going to get sick and there's gonna be darkness over the land and I'm going to kill the firstborn of every person in Egypt because you have taken my firstborn child the nation of Israel. And I'm going to part the Red Sea and I'm gonna give you 10 commandments from the top of Mount Sinai and I'm going to give you water from a rock and I'm going to feed you every single night from the dew of heaven. And do you need, at some point, you need to say, I believe this is true. At some point, you need to say, I believe this actually happened. At some point, we need to say, is Jesus real? Did he come did he die for my sins? Because the, Jewish, the historical records say there was a man named Jesus and he is real. But at some point we need to believe that for ourselves. 
In the midst of all of this, going back to 11 verse seven, not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, man or beast, that you might know the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. This is a story of redemption. The Exodus. Verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of their land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks and on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and for their clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so they let them have whatever they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians." The people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot. This is where we get the number 200, uh, 2 million. About 600,000 men, 600,000 women, and lots of kids as well. A fixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, flocks and herds, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves." The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night watched by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. We're running long on time, so I'm gonna make this quick. One comment. Next slide, please. They plundered the Egyptians. This is a military term. The Israelites didn't lift one finger and God stretched out his hand and he decimated the Egyptians. Livestock, dead. Crops, gone. Firstborns have passed away. And then all the nation of Egypt says, here's our gold, our silver, our jewelry, and the Israelites take a victory lap because victory rests with the Lord. Verse, uh, pardon me, the last part of our passage this morning. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every slave that is brought, uh, bought for money may eat it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt to their hosts. For the band, I invite you to come join me on the platform. For everybody else, take your communion and you can start unwrapping it. In the first chapter of the Gospel of John, we're introduced to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is not the author of John, he's just a major character. And John the Baptist, with all of the, his apprentices following him, sees Jesus the Messiah, the savior of the world. And he points at him, next slide, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Passover started nearly 3,500 years ago, being reminded that we are saved and that we are sanctified. 
The bread represents 1,500 years later the broken body of Jesus himself. The juice represents the cup. And the author of scripture, probably Moses at this part and the different disciples and followers of Jesus in the New Testament are saying, take this until he comes. Remember the incredible sacrifice. And if you're here today and you're thinking, man, this sounds really interesting, but I'm not sure I'm ready. Man, are we glad you're here. We hope that you feel that this can be home and that this can be a place of love, but we do ask that at this time, just enjoy the music, but to not partake. For those of you who have said, I believe in Jesus. I believe he died for my sins. I believe that he is going to come back to earth at some point, and I believe that I'm going to join him in heaven for all of eternity. The Passover lamb costs something. It cost the heavenly father, his one and only son, so that we might have eternal life. If you believe this is true, please partake with me. Then Jesus took the cup. He said, this is the sacrament of my body. This is the blood that Jesus shed on the cross for our sins that we might have eternity with him to drink together. Heavenly Father, we are not perfect. Good news is we don't have to be because you are. And so God, we thank you that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son. We thank you, Jesus, that you love us so much that you came to earth on a rescue mission, redeeming us, buying us back. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you love us so much that for all who believe in you, you come and you live with us forever. God, may we be a people when we take communion that we are reminded of the incredible sacrifice and the wonderful King who we have the privilege of worshiping. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.